everybody. Welcome to the French Village Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark. And as always, I am here with my brilliant friend, Benjamin Wittes. We're talking about season six, episodes four through six, which means we have completed the sixth season. And that this is the third to last episode of the French Village Podcast. That is, it is, because we're, we're going to do... Even if we're renewed for season seven, there will <laughs> only be two more episodes. Can you imagine if the brass didn't renew us for the last season? That would be a dirty trick. It'd Such a like, dirty trick. That would be a terrible outcome. Do you know, I saw your friend, I don't, Ducks with Pants, who I've met through your podcast in lieu of fun, which is a great podcast I love to go on, and uh, and and he accused me on Twitter of being eager to finish this so I could go on to my other pet projects, you know, the focus group and the other podcasts that I do. And I got to tell you, uh, I, it's not that it's not that I'm eager, but this, this is, we're, we're like about seven seasons deep. I mean, we are, it, this thing is coming to a, a natural conclusion. I just want to say at ducks with pants, AKA EG Phillips is just a mischief maker and he said that because he knew it would antagonize you and he <laughs> got you to talk about it on the show. So uh, hat tip to at Ducks with Pants, uh, you, you've you uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I just, look, there's two episodes of this show left because there's six, there's six episodes coming up. Um, but Ben, let's, let's, let's talk about these. Cause I, I realized when we did three episodes, uh, last week, I realized a third episode creates more content to talk about. We had a tough time getting through it all. So we need to be expeditious in our analysis here. All right. To the content. Let's go. <laughs> so, so the, the, the fourth episode kicks off with young Gustav, uh, who is now a murderer. Uh, did we see a young murdering Gustav in our future back when he was just a, a little boy forgetting his notebook and getting, you know, yelled at by his dad. And protecting Captain Carrot, you know, from a certain death. He was, he was uh, very passionate about that. This is what happens when you try to murder a little boy's rabbit. He turns into a murderer. It's also what happens after, when adolescents, you know, they start out cute and they, you know, puberty hits and the next thing you know, they're murdering, uh, uh, you know, American soldiers who trade on the black market. So, um, no, we did not see this coming, at least insofar as we includes me. Um, Gustav, uh, he's got some issues that he's dealing with. Uh, he's got abandonment issues from both of his parents. He's got, you know, the whole, the closest thing I have to a mother figure, uh, uh, in my life, I can't decide if it's Hortense, who's like the worst person in the world, not just the worst person in my family, but the worst person in the whole world, or whether it's Sarah, who's been like shipped off to a concentration camp and is probably dead. Um, we have, you know, he's got abandonment issues from his dad, who, uh, you know, cared about the revolution so much, he went and abandoned his kid and got himself shot. And even when he's talking to the ghost of his dad, uh, like he's challenging him about that. Um, and so he does the only thing a reasonable young man can do under those circumstances, which is start killing people. He joins up with the gay mafia, such as it is in Villeneuve, and yes. uh, Servier's uh, misbegotten nephew and his... I guess that guy's his lover. Uh, I can't tell. He has a lot of jealousy issues around Gustav. Um, yeah, they, they don't. That relationship is never fully explained. It sure isn't. But, you know, they do. They So he shoots this guy. He, he goes back to. And the, we should note that um, uh, the young lady who is Suzanne's daughter, uh, uh, Lenore, Leonore. Leonore. Uh, is she she's been into the bad boy image up until well this this throws her for a loop the idea that he is capable of murder doesn't stop her from wanting a kiss before he goes she's she's a, she wants a bad boy but not quite that bad not quite that bad uh and so he he kind of gives her a way to contact him she is because Villeneuve, Villeneuve is very small uh the, she is she is of course has like her stepdadish guy is 
Mario, the chief of police, um, who has actually made it through this entire series uh, as kind of a mid-level character. Um, and so, you know, now her parents, like they immediately figure out, Suzanne and, and Lario figure out that she was there with him. They've got a description of her. And so now they are now invested in getting this thing covered up. Uh, and so they, you know, she, she dimes out his location. Lario goes and gets him, uh, and basically negotiates that if, uh, they, they shoot the, the maybe lover, um, and he shoots him, right? Uh, no, the, oh no, uh, Servia's nephew gangster, shoots him. The older gangster does. Yeah. Yeah. He shoots Servia's him. nephew takes him out and then inexplicably Lario lets, the nephew go um, and tells him to get out of town, which he does, abandons Gustav with uh, with glee and abandon. And uh, then Gustav is taken into the warm embrace of the police force and the Communist Party. Yeah, who have, uh, they've got like a kid's camp of some kind where you can go to learn to be a good communist uh you can play sports uh you can and girls are allowed as well youth movements man they all the totalitarian movements had them uh well this was it was a funny it was sort of a funny transition of how they were able to sort of pin this whole thing on the dead guy get get gustav off and then decide they're going to ship him off to commie camp along with it seems like lenore um although in this episode it's they don't go to commie camp so much as they they get pulled into the Marcel Larche celebration, uh, and which is all tied together with Edmund's uh, political campaign for mayor because he is running against um, Schwartz for mayor. And this is this is a the the ideological tension of the time uh, between the communists who now want to be in leadership roles. Uh, they want to claim the mantle of being the first people to actively resist the Nazis. But of course there's kind of a moderate Gaullist faction of the Barrio, uh, Schwartz types who don't, don't want to, the communists in charge. They want good, good Republicans, meaning people who are for the Republic, um, but they want to hold the commies at bay. Yeah, so this is a a real political effect um, from the time, and the show uh, depicts it nicely without ever dwelling on it. Uh, in the period after the war, uh, there was a ferocious battle um, between the communists and uh, the Gaullists for... Uh, the governance of France. And a similar thing happened in Italy. Um, uh, but keeping the French Communist Party out of power, which was ultimately successful, uh, was, you know, one of the things there, you know, was one of the ideas behind things like the Marshall Plan, right? Like, how do you build up the factions in states, uh, uh, the Soviets were very serious about having these states go communist. And the Communist Party had a serious claim to legitimacy uh, as one of the factions, the faction that was most active in the resistance. Uh, it did a lot during the war. Of course, it also had its serious vulnerabilities, like having been essentially allied with the Nazis uh, up until the invasion of the Soviet Union. And so this is a period, and it goes on through the 50s, um, where the communists are, um, are, you know, a viable political force in France. Uh, they were uh, brought into the resistance leadership um, by the Gaullists, and they had representation on all of these councils some of them they had up to, you know, 40, 50 percent representation on. So like the depiction of the town council, which has a, uh, a commie flank uh, that's loyal to Edmund, is absolutely accurate. And unlike the other parties, they were, you know, they did not have like diversity of viewpoints because their positions were dictated from Moscow. 
they were much less independent of Moscow from Moscow than, for example, the Italian Communist Party was, which, uh, you know, had its own, uh, you know, famously the leadership of, uh, of Gramsci, who was killed during the war or died during the war in, uh, um, in uh, Mussolini's prisons. But he was sufficiently independent of Moscow that the Italian Communist Party had a little bit of a, of a kind of independence uh, uh, thing that the French Communist Party, I mean, these were hardcore Stalinists and uh, remained loyal up until, you know, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And so uh, this is a picture of, you know, this fight over who gets to claim the resistance. Is the resistance the Gaullists in London who had their on-the-ground people, or is the resistance Marcel Larcher, who's the first, you know, the faction, the first to start killing German soldiers? And what are the resistance activities that we celebrate? And what are the ones that we uh, kind of don't talk about? And they, the different factions developed completely different histories, completely different mythologies, completely different ideas of what the resistance was. And the show you know, does a nice job of depicting that in a fashion that is, um, uh, you know, it doesn't dwell on it, but it, it's quite accurate that that was this battle for the resistance's legacy and soul and and for the legitimacy that comes from it began immediately as the war was ending. You know, if I, so I had, I had written down uh, at some point watching these episodes that this was about rewriting history, uh, but it's as much about writing history as it is about rewriting history. And thematically, the show, especially in these three episodes, is at its best when it is doing things like showing Edmund speak to the crowd of communists and to- and do this whole thing about Marcel Larcher, who was his great friend, because he is trying to own the story, right? It's the sort of a stolen valor from Marcel and, you know, you get to watch Gustav take in a narrative about his father that he can be quite proud of. But, like, of course, we know, having watched the whole show, that Edmund was crappy to Marcel the whole time, was constantly his antagonist, was not on his side, tried to have him, was almost condemned him to be murdered at one point, um, you know, tried to have him kill Suzanne, who he's now, you know, aligned with. Uh, and so there is a, you are watching the narratives happened. And there's actually a great, they point to it in, I'm not a big fan of flashbacks in general, and there's a lot of them in these episodes, but the one of the flashbacks, even though it goes back to the woods and it's Claude, it is Claude talking about what reality is. And he's talking about it in the context of the play. Uh, But it is, it is, I think, hammering on this theme of who gets to tell the story and, and how does it get told? Um, And, and, and we see this kind of replete throughout, right? So it's also very present when Antoine is asked to go talk about the four resistors, right? Because they want to create a story about these four resistors as martyrs. And Antoine is is trying to get up and tell that story because he knows that's what he's supposed to do, but ultimately he can't because the real story is, the real story is that he let the rope go so that they could, now they were martyrs, but it, it didn't happen in the nice, neat way that people kind of want to imagine that it happened. It happened in a way that was where there was some culpability from Anselm and Antoine, where they were sacrificed. And that is different, but less palatable for people. Yes. And of course, in in the immediate myth-building project, the communist event is way more effective than the Gaullist event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the Gaullist event is meant to set up these uh, the four martyrs as a kind of alternative to Marcel Larcher, except that the speaker on their behalf is like, actually, they didn't really sacrifice themselves. We we sacrificed them. I, you know, could have stayed and helped them up with the rope, but you know, uh, uh, 
Anselm over here convinced me to toss it down, and so I did. And well, they, they were surrounded by Germans. Uh, yeah, no, they no, had no, to no. make a total, decision. Yeah, totally legit decision, but not exactly heroic on anybody's totally. part, including theirs. And so, you know, in the short term, the communists have this rally about Marcel Larcher, and the story really works. And there's, yeah, there's some bullshit in it, but largely true. And and they build myth about it and everybody feels great. Um, And the Gaullists, you know, are sort of a little bit encumbered by this, you know, well, we shouldn't make myths that aren't true. And there should be, you know, I'm like a little bit uncomfortable being made to be a hero here because I actually caused them to die. In the long run, that's what we call liberalism. And, you know, you iron out your, um, your, you kind of deal with truth and stuff along the way. And it may make you weaker in the short term, but it actually makes you stronger in the long term. Um, and, you know, like the, the communists were, incredibly brittle as a result of their rigidity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really good for certain things. It's good for keeping people in line. It's good for discipline. It's good for, uh, you know, it's not good for agility. It's not good for changed circumstances. It's There's all kinds of things. It's not good for broad coalitions, which the Gaulists have much more of an ability to do. And the Gaullists, you know, all over time, and this is a really important historical development, eventually the left in France did elect a president in 1979 or 80, uh, and it was somebody who was, you know, not a communist. It was the the Socialist Party of which Suzanne had been a member elected Francois Mitterrand, who was a uh, actually a Vichy official at the beginning of the war. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually abandons Vichy in a kind of like uh, almost um, de Caverne-like way, becomes a socialist, and as an older man becomes the first left president of France, um, because the socialists were more adaptive, they were actually democratic, they were, you know, they didn't have this brittleness problem. And, um, you know, this was the downfall, ultimately, other than it's, you know, it's, no pun intended, servile attitude toward the Soviet Union. This was a very, very deep flaw of the communists. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the scene where they're doing the four resistors just really quick, is a great scene because you get Antoine de Caverne and Schwartz all giving very uncomfortable uh, speeches that are not anywhere close to the rallying cries that the kind of Gaullist official needs them to be used. Uh, and it, it, it anyway, it does, it does reflect that. So turning, I don't want to belabor Hortense in these episodes because I honestly really find the whole Hortense going mad annoying. Um, that being said, the one thing, we talked about this a little bit last time. Can we time. just say on the Hortense going mad thing, I like Servier's response to this whole situation much better than Hortense's. Which is just saying, like, I deserve this. I gotta, like... I'm kind of like, I did what I thought was right. Life is, like, people disagree with me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to st- sketch them in the meantime. I, <laughs> I, I, I think, like, th- these are Servier's best episodes. Yeah, well, so I really want to talk about Daniel and Servier, but I sort of want to dispense with uh Hortense. All right, let's get rid because of Hortense. I just have, like, one observation about her, which is I, I, there's two things I don't like that I want to raise. So one is she ping-pongs back and forth in these episodes through, like, absolutely, like, off her gourd, losing her mind, to, like, seeming very normal around buying hats and talking when she has that, what I... She uh, bought a lot of hats. She bought a lot of hats. Uh, they, all look great. Seri- they all look great seri- on her. Serious hat buying, thinking, dropping trip there. Well, you're wearing that hat, Hortense. That's uh, still, you got that. 
but she um uh, the the this is so she's ping-ponging back and forth and like she has that scene with Marchetti uh, that I, I quite liked because I like all of Marchetti's scenes in these episodes um, where she's totally lucid and normal, but then like otherwise she's drilling holes in the wall uh, into her neighbor's house because she's convinced they're talking about her, which I will say just if you're going to have Hortense go mad, that narcissism being at the center of it still at least that fits. They um, are all talking about her actually. She's right. It's not mad. She's hearing Because they're dri- she's drilling holes in their walls. She's so drilling they, you know, holes in the wall. She's got, you know, she's got them pegged. <laughs> well, I don't think they were talking about her before she started doing all that weird <laughs> stuff. They are now. Uh, yeah. And and then it also turns out she's so this is one thing part I just don't like because it never I don't even think we talked about it last week, which is that there's these little like bribery or not bribery, but these little um like blackmail notes showing up to people that have the the little newspaper. And so it comes out in this episode, Daniel finds all the cutouts of the newspaper. So it's clear she's the one kind of sending these anonymous notes to people that like she knows their secrets. I don't really understand the point of this whole deal other than what she feels like she she feels like she's been made to pay the price. And they haven't. And everybody else is going on with their lives and she's reminding them that they're as guilty as she is, which of course they're not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, um, that's right. And I get, but so I guess, I guess that's the point of this, uh, this whole thing for Hortense. But uh, I just, I will just, I just want to go on the record and say, I don't, I don't well, love that this is how it's all going. So I am going to uh, refer to this theme recurrently throughout this episode, but I want to start with Hortense. So I did some reading this past week on the purges after the war in France. And it turns out the purges took place in two broad phases, uh, one of which are uh, um, was the first of both of which are depicted at length in the show. So the first of them uh, was called the Epuration Legal, which means, I'm sorry, the first of them was the Epuration Savage, um, which means the wild purge or the savage purge. Um, And the savage purge was characterized by a whole bunch of summary executions, some with uh, little fake trials of the type we saw depicted. It was also characterized by head shavings. Um, And um, so the uh, uh, the number of people summarily killed uh, was quite large. Um, uh, the um, and the uh, show's depiction of that of this sort of ad hoc trial following followed by a, um, uh, a, a, a you know set of executions is is quite accurate. Uh, as is the parading through the town and shaving of the heads of women uh, suspected of uh, sleeping with Germans. Um, And so the specific account of Hortense's uh, treatment that she is now buying hats to cover up is, uh, is also quite accurate and characteristic of this period in which uh, the uh, free French uh, were sweeping in and had to deal with officials who were uh, currently uh, in car, uh, who were sometimes in office, sometimes you know recently stepped down. Um, the second phase, which this episode depicts, is uh, called the Epuration Legal, um, as in the legal purge, where the more reconstructed apparatus of the state actually held real trials for people, most famously Laval, who was, uh, and and um, um, the marshal himself, Pétain. Um, uh, Laval was executed, uh, Pétain was not. Um, uh, but there were many, many such trials um, And the depiction of Servier and getting the death penalty and Larche not is uh, uh, also quite accurate. These trials um, made, tried many, many more people than they executed. 
many death sentences were in fact commuted by de Gaulle. So the idea that Servier advances, you know, the idea that Servier's lawyer thinks he can get his sentence commuted um, is probably re pretty realistic. And the idea that, you know, officials who had less culpability were kind of let off with what was called what Danielle actually gets, which is uh, national shame, national indignity. Uh, a lot of people, this happened actually to a lot of people. And so think of season five as the season about the wild or savage purge, and season six is the season about the the legal purge. Yeah, well, let's, so let's, uh, now that we've, I guess the only thing, so the, I, I will buy that there were people who were driven to a kind of psychic break by the fact that they have been kind of cast out of society. I just don't, I'm just not enjoying it as a plot line to watch it, but I don't think it's unrealistic that this would oh, happen. I, did, to someone I like didn't her. mean it was, I just wanted yeah. to slip no, yeah, yeah, in yeah, our no. brief discussion of Hortense that the specific thing that was done to her head shaving yeah. done all over France. Yep. Um, so, but let's go to the trial because I think this is uh, this is sort of the this is a, the meat of these three episodes. Is... Can I just say the one of the best scenes in the show yes. is the dueling closing arguments yes. of prosecution and defense about they spent a little time on Servier, but we all know where it's going with Servier. But the dueling closing arguments about Larche is great. It's it's absolutely great. As is, I think. Larche's speech, right? So they don't want Larche to explain himself, uh, that he participated in making the list. Uh, you know, he thinks it might help Servier, but he also just, Daniel Larche is, wants to unburden himself and he wants people to see him clearly for his flaws and for what he tried to do. And he says, he says in this speech, uh, he says, I wanted to limit the evil, but in reality, I helped it. And that was a very succinct way of him finally understanding what Sarah Meyer tried to tell him when she was in jail about the fact that he thinks he's trying to be a good guy. And this is, this is the story of Daniel Larche. And he, he, he sees it there. He says, I sinned out of pride. I let injustices and even horrors slide. Uh, and, and when his lawyer says, why did you do that? Uh, he says, oh, but if you only knew how good it made me feel. He's literally ready to risk death and a death sentence to say what he believes is the truth, which is, I'm not a monster. I didn't do these monstrous things that you say. Because we even know, even the, the baby stealing, which they accuse him of, is not correct. He made some bad choices, but he did. The whole thing happened because a woman died and he tried to help. Uh, you know, he tried to give the baby to some soldiers and then ultimately, you know, basically save the baby from the clutches of, a of going into the system with the, with the mean nuns. And so, um, I just, I love this speech from Daniel. I love the, and this is what I mean about the writing or the rewriting of history is neither the defense or the prosecution is giving a complete and accurate summation of Daniel. Like they're both, they're both wrong. They're both wrong about him. Only Daniel and, is right about him. And yet the court kind of gets it right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you if you accept Daniel's account of himself, the court sentence, which is, hey, uh, you're not responsible for murdering people. You're not in a in the sense that we really condemn it, a collaborator. But your hands aren't clean either, and so we want you to practice medicine. Go back to being a doctor. We'll give you uh, a disgraced title, uh, and that's kind of it. It's just like a pretty reasonable adjudication for 1946. Yep. Or uh, 45. Yeah, actually, I'm not sure which year we're in, but but it is – it is satisfying. The whole thing is satisfying from a Daniel's understanding of himself and his reckoning with it, his telling the truth to people, uh, the judgment that they give, which appears just. And then I don't know. Well, then, then, and then there's Servier, who, what I like about the Servier sentence and the Daniel sentence is that the that the 
the people and justice sort of get get right, despite the fact that they were partners in much of this. And there's even a lot of scenes in which, you know, Servier is saying, oh, you're my only friend. And, you know, and Daniel seems genuinely sorry for what's happening to Servier, thinks it's sort of not fair exactly what's happening to Servier. But it distinguishes between these two men and the roles that they played, which is as it should be. Yeah. I mean, so this season causes a certain level of sympathy with Servier. And maybe even Marchetti. Yes, because they are humans facing death and thinking about what they've done in life. And anytime that happens, you know, we have a human reaction to that. But Servier is really guilty. And the prosecutor is not wrong that he has a certain sympathy, active sympathy with what Vichy is trying to do. Um, he is um, he is not just a passive participant, sort of caught up in it the way and trying to mitigate the way Larche is. He's um, he's an active sympathizer and participant. Uh, in a fashion that is uh, sometimes quite corrupt. You know, he uh, saves his nephew at somebody else's expense. Um, He's a, um, he really seems completely untroubled by the 1942 deportations of of Jews um, and really seems to buy that, oh, it's fine as long as they're not French Jews. Um, you know, the whole, the, 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 the bullshit of it, uh, d- he never seems to have that moment where Sarah Meyer, like, says to him, you're part of the problem, and it gets through to him, even to the point that as he's sitting on death row thinking about uh, the one of the, girls that he sent to her death he says you know he's he thinks about her but he doesn't think about his role in it um Mm -hmm. and that's pretty hard to understand um that level of moral disconnect and so i think he's very different from larche both in both in what he did and in what he in how he evaluates himself to the point that in their last meeting, when they, when they play this game where they imagine a, what book they are, his answer is like, I'm an out of date penal code, which is like a good joke actually. Mm -hmm. Um, But is, it's like, he doesn't ever consider why the previous penal code was abandoned right he was a and he doesn't understand that being a faithful servant of an evil penal code is not a defense totally and and you know one of the things that about sir there's this kind of this is devastating scene as he's being walked to his death and his wife has not come to see him and of course, the f- I think it's the first time we meet his wife, or in the or the first couple episodes where she shows up. One of the things that she's telling him is like the tide is ch- turning, and the resistance people are helping the resistance, and he's like really caught off guard by this because this is a guy with no moral sense, right? He's just like he's like what people are lining up against us now, like the the you know he he doesn't see why. Uh, he thinks strategically about potentially how to utilize that or or position himself uh, potentially, but he doesn't think about it like, uh, oh, this was wrong. We've been wrong. We took the wrong side. We made a bad bet. Uh, and yeah, and that's sort of just who who he is. Um, and so it's I, I I don't know what metaphor the cave. Where the he's he was a other than they give everybody sort of their last thoughts, um, and it is Servier as a child, some kind of Cub Scouty type thing. Uh, other than him, 
he, they're lost in a cave and he's trying to, he and his friends are all trying to get out. And ultimately they, they do find their way out. And it's more just him going toward the light, uh, is, is what you see, but, well, but you, it's about the role of voting. Yeah. Right. He, yeah, that's true. He believes they're all honor bound to follow him because they voted mm-hmm. and they're like, fuck this. We didn't, you know, you, you got us stuck in here and then he gets them out. And so he feels vindicated by having articulated the rule and followed it and doesn't seem to understand that it's not really the rule that saved them. Yeah, that's good. That's a good analysis. I I, I actually didn't quite uh, put it together. I, even the second time I remembered it and I didn't. Um, well, anyway, RIP Servier. Uh, justice came for you and at the end of the day your wife didn't show up and all you had was a notebook of drawings uh, to confer. By contrast, Rita shows up in a big way for Marketi. As does, as well, so, okay, so Hortense goes to see him first uh, because they want Marchetti to, to testify at Daniel's trial that Daniel was actually a huge pain in Marchetti's ass, would not collaborate effectively, and Marchetti, as always, basically barters for his, you know, for showing up at that, at the trial and, and testifying the truth. Uh, he needs Hortense to go find Rita for him. That is a sad scene. I, you know, they, they do a lot with Marchetti and I love the Marchetti scenes. I love them. Yeah, they're good. Um, his testimony is great. His testimony is terrific. Do you see how he sticks it to the commies? Yeah, he can't let you some know, of that stuff go. He reminds them that they were allied with the Nazis uh-huh. in, in in forty. Um, yeah, he's Which the is, only one who does that. Well, well, there is. I mean, there. He no, that's not true. There's there's the there's sometime earlier in the first three episodes where somebody is saying to the judge and other people, I remember you as part of Vichy. And so like, there's the point about the courtrooms, the the courtroom scenes are about the global culpability, right? There's two people on trial, but like everyone's on trial to some degree uh, because Daniel is not that different from most people in the room. Lots of the judges, even the attorneys, you know, they were all playing some kind of role um, although Daniel and Servier do have a Jewish attorney, but wait, what was the point? Where are we going with this? Uh, no, just, uh, you, you were talking about Marquette. Oh, Marquette, uh, sorry. So, the, so, so he gives Hortense his, shows up and, and he, he's, he's so grasping for some bit of warmth for somebody to tell him he isn't a monster that he's asking Hortense, what did you feel for me back then? You know, when we were carrying on our affair and she's like, like she even, this is, I sort of feel bad for him that Hortense can't even give a dying man some comfort of, I liked you, you were nice. Instead, she was like, I don't know. I didn't think about you. <laughs> like, I didn't Which think about true. it very much. Yeah. Uh, you were, I was just passing the time with you, bub, and you helped me steal a baby because uh, we're both corrupt. And so, so that was, but anyway, he, he basically says, in exchange for him testifying, go get Rita which she must do because Rita appears. Um, and she is back from Palestine briefly to bring the family, the bodies of, of uh, Ezekiel Cohn, who she is now married to, uh, back to be, oh, no, she's ta- they're taking the bodies from there to go be buried in Palestine. And it also turns out she's rich now uh, because he's got a rich uh, uncle that died or something. And now they're very wealthy and she's very well appointed in her dress. And Marchetti, seems to take at least some positive, something positive from the fact that David will be rich. His son yes. will be well off. And he wants, I, so this is Marketi at his best. He wants to meet his son and she brings David to, you know, play with him and write on the walls. Um, he wants to tell his own story to his son. Um, and he writes it down. Um, he wants to control the circumstances of his death, um, which inexplicably she assists. Um, and he wants her forgiveness, which she does not give. Um, 
And I think the portrayal of her reaction to him is one of the most interesting human portrayals in the whole show. The complex interaction of revulsion and love and affection and being morally appalled, but also feeling sorry, um, being a sense of indebtedness, but also anger. I mean, he did have her mother killed. Um, You know, there's just so much going on in that relationship. Um, And by the way, he also saved the life of her now husband and stepdaughter, um, thus enabling her new life. Um, You know, Which which he reminds her of. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, and this is a picture of the intimacy and complexity of life in very small towns where people play multiple roles. It's possible to be, you know, both the butcher of Villeneuve and in many ways somebody's savior and the murderer of her mother and also her lover and the father of her child all in one go. And you watch as Mark Mercati really wants to be the list of the good things and get absolution from, you know, having personally murdered Marie Germain with his own hands one day before liberation and the parts of it that she can and can't give to him. Um, And I think it's one of the show's great portrayals of a relationship. And it is, and it is, it is demonstrated, I think quite in a quite lovely way where she, what he wants from her is to go procure um, like poison so that he can commit suicide and not die by firing squad which when she comes back to visit him, she has it hidden in her hat. But at first she tells him she doesn't have it because she's she does have this idea of like not wanting to enable his death, right? Not wanting, but at the same time, she sort of takes pity on him ultimately and does give it to him and then stays with him while he dies, uh, which is probably the most Marchetti deserves. Uh, like I think to the extent that you feel I am satisfied by Marchetti's death uh and i am also glad that the person that he loved um was there helped facilitate his death and there's just something uh i don't know like he's got a jewish son like the the his david is jewish it runs through the mother's bloodline and that is and and so there's just yeah it is it's it's complex but it is it was good and um and satisfied. It is interesting that Marchetti, had he not killed Marie, might actually have been one of those people who got off. Like Lario got off. He's the chief of police now. Yeah, but Marchetti was uh remember uh the resistance was saying he got has to be killed on site. That's right. Even before I mean Marie was saying, I'll cut a deal with uh, you know, with you know, with Servier for home detention, but not with Marquette. You, you're on your own, and that was before he killed her. So I think Marquette had he had problems with. I think he was going to have problems after the war, even before. And I think it was actually partly the fact that he knew that that caused him to be so uninhibited about his rage toward her. Yeah, although unlike Servier, who basically sees no, he sees neither a real path to clemency nor a desire for clemency, whereas Marchetti until the last, up until the end, is trying to get a pardon. Like, he is trying to save his own life. Yes. Um, And I think, I think Marchetti's problem is that you know, uh, he goes through the first half of the war thinking he's on the right side. His um, He's got the legal authority of the marshal. 
he's uh you know the people that he feels he's opposing are you know the communists and the uh and the what he calls anti-nationals um and all of a sudden you know it turns around and bites him in the ass and these things that he's doing uh are understood to be on behalf of the germans rather than on behalf of the french state and at one level he's fatalistic about it but on the other hand he he is angry about that and in a way that servier is kind of you know um, almost amused by it you know servier's sense of himself as the you know discarded out of date penal code whereas like Mercati has a kind of rage at, wait a minute, you changed the rules on me, right? Uh, you know, you ordered me to do X, Y, and Z. It's much more of the classic, you know, um, uh, I'm being hung out to dry by your changed values. And he never asks the question, wait a minute, what did you do beyond what was strictly necessary and how much did you you know implicate yourself he was after all corrupt he was uh you know making exceptions for his the jews that were sleeping with him um you know he he was not a wholly good faith implementer of vichy policy he was a corrupt and sometimes overzealous um uh actor who was you know serving his own needs as well yeah i remember in those early seasons when he uh discovered because of uh muller he picked up his cigarette burning uh affectation and torturing people yeah he's a bad guy i'm not i'm not sorry to see him go okay we have great to talk- actor though. Great actor. Love his scenes. Um, just, and I just actually, I will say you, you mentioned this and I, I want to draw just a quick attention to it again, because it goes to this theme of sort of writing history and or rewriting history, right? Marchetti gives Rita a book of his story for David so that David has a vision of him that is not just what, how he'll be known by history, right? As a monster. He wants him to have this other version. Marcel has left this notebook for Gustave, that Gustave is is reading at the same time that he is now himself encountering the communists who celebrate his father. Um, And so you can see him uh, after wandering aimlessly, you know, sort of being brought into this ideology, both from the words of his father uh, and as well as these other people celebrating his father's legacy. And then there's also Servier, who's got his sort of book of pictures, which when his wife doesn't show up is what he passes to them, his notebook. Um, and it is there, they're in people wanting their stories to be known. And, and this, this is what everything that's happening right now is like, how will people remember all of these things and how will people interpret each of them? And anyway, it's just very central to this. And I, I found it all uh, moving. All right. So we got to talk about, we're going to get to Schwartz. I've the, the next two or two things, two there's Schwartz and Janine who I am not wild about. And I have, uh, and there's also um, Lucienne. Yeah. We got to save Lucienne for the end. You want to do Lucienne uh, at the end? Fine. We got to do Lucienne at the end. Cause I'm going to vomit when same, we talk about Lucienne. Same, same. Okay. Well then let's just do Schwartz. I, I, I mean, I might vomit for this one too. Here's the thing I got to say, I, I don't quite know how to say this. I always get awkward when I talk about the, the sexy parts of the show, but like I find uh, Schwartz to be an incredibly handsome human um, and a compelling human. When he is having relations with Janine, I find them both so revolting. And the fact that he starts sleeping with her again is both inexplicable to me, uh, other than I guess, I guess, you know, and they, they do this thing where, you know, Marie always said he'd get back with Janine, but, you know, they've been through quite a bit. He's seen an awful lot out of her. He seems to hold her in quite a bit of contempt. And yet, because she seems to be pushing him to run for mayor, and maybe because he doesn't see a lot of other options around, he's lost 
several people that he loves during the course of this. You know, he married another woman who had to commit suicide and then Maria's murdered. He finds himself back with Janine and I just hate it. Hate it. Yes, the flesh is weak. Um, and, <laughs> and the pickings in Villeneuve society are are thin after the war. Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, Raymond Schwartz has some great moments in, in this show. And uh, the screenwriters seem intent on making you have contempt for him at the end. Um he is running a shitty mayoral campaign. He is being led around by a collar on a collar by his ex-wife, who is one of the worst people in the show. Um, who's managed who's, to escape all justice. Yes. Who is just like a horrible person. And you kind of see where this is going in the first three episodes of the show, of uh, the season. But it's like this, oh, no, please don't um, moment. And it's terrible. And I don't have more to say about it than that. Yeah. Except that it's not as bad as the Lucienne situation. All right. So let's just talk about Lucienne. Because honestly, I got to say, I don't even know what's going on here. Like, I don't, I, I hope you can tell me what the point is of this uh, storyline. Because I don't understand why she's decided that seducing a priest via threats of suicide slash let me tell you about my let me tell you about my <laughs> curt fantasies that give me a funny feeling funny feeling <laughs> in, in the lower tummy. abdomen <laughs> <laughs> what what is going on what is the point of this other than I don't we know. just decided I, to hate Lucy Ann some more so i think you know as you know i think all the plot lines involving Lucienne from the beginning of the show is the weak link in the show. <laughs> I think Lucienne is like one of the more badly written characters. I think uh, she is not brilliantly played, but this is a nader here. I mean, and the, down to you think she's committed suicide and it all turns out to be, you know, there's actually a scene where Berio walks in on her apparently dead. Um, and the show lets you think she's killed herself, which is itself a weird outcome. But then, whoops, she's back. And actually, the suicide attempt was a fake to get Berio to call the priest who she's been confessing to about masturbating. And... Um, and call the priest uh, and get him to come to her house where she then tries to seduce him. But the priest is, is a faithful priest. He's not into that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know what there, what point anybody is trying to make with anything here, except maybe, uh, trying to bring the Lucienne plotline to a close and not quite knowing how to do it. I don't know. I thought it was, it, it like, it's a real weak spot in the show. I hate it. Uh, other than being like, I guess the priest is kind of hot, but like, other than that, I can't see what is happening here. But the, uh, the priest is kind of hot. Like, you know, have like, do something with that you know like this doesn't even do something with that besides the priest is like not that hot <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i don't know. i mean it, it is it's just it's a i can't well important for us, we should go again in the continuing series of the french village podcast relationship advice um we should say <laughs> don't try don't use suicide attempts as a way to manipulate your estranged husband into bringing you a priest so that you can seduce him. It's not a good, that's not a good strategy for seducing priests. Yeah. I, I hate this storyline for her and I don't, I'm not as, I've never been quite as down on Lucienne as you are, but I, I, like Lucienne. I was, I was revolted by this uh, storyline. Anything uh, we need to talk about, about this storyline? I don't like, think can that we this just is, say we no, hate it. No, and, we can say we hate because I don't. It doesn't. This is not even pegged to anything. Like it's not doing anything. It's not advancing the story. It's not telling us something new about her. Like other than somewhere in here, she is both her 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 romantic decisions have included 
the other teacher who gets all the kids ki- who gets some kids killed, then the German soldier, then the guy she doesn't actually love, but she can, you know, shack up with, uh, and then the lesbian, and now the priest. And so, like, what are, what are we supposed to take from this? Yeah, we, well, she's she's kind of pan. Yeah, I guess. Um. <laughs> <laughs> this is what, all right. And, okay, there's one thing I wanted to add, which is that. They do the, like the last, like just like they do with Servier, like his last kind of thought. They do that with Marchetti, and it's this scene of him with Eliane, where he's being very kind to her. Um, and again, this idea of like that's how Marchetti, as he dies, he wants to see himself as that decent person. Let's, that- you know, Marchetti could also uh, remember that his relationship with Eliane. Uh, that that was about the only kind moment in it. Um, but um, yes, I agree. They He really, he wants to remember himself as a decent guy in bad circumstances. And there are cherry-picked activities that he was engaged in that can support that, but you have to cherry-pick them. Yeah, yeah. Then the only other thing was, again, another plot point that I didn't quite understand why this was important to include i hate i hate a rape that is not essential to a narrative uh and genevieve uh getting attacked by the american soldiers and then having to you know go with antoine to the police station uh and like fight with lario to let them even like file a claim or whatever what why other than I guess they were, I mean, there's the my the Americans do not come off well in this French show. Like the Americans are either indifferent to the needs of the French people because they have their own mission to do, or they are uh, sleeping with all the French women, or they are raping a French woman, or they are dealing on the black market. Yeah. So first of all, um, when occupations happen, and particularly in the aftermath or during World War II. Rapes happened. You know, the idea that some American soldiers, and by the way, in this period on the Eastern Front, the percentage of German women uh, who were raped by Russian soldiers is, you know, it's astonishing how pervasive uh, rape was in the occupation of, of Eastern Europe. Um, and so, like, the idea that this is. And by the way, where, you know, U.S. troops are stationed over long periods of time in Korea, in um, Okinawa, you know, there are these rape cases that happen every now and then uh, that are major, major sources of tension between local populations and U.S. military. It's one of the things that the U.S. military has had to deal with over the years. So I think... So what? it's an interesting question. What role is it playing in the show? Is it there sort of as a pro forma? And by the way, the U.S. president wasn't wasn't wholly about liberation. There was also, you know, some ugly stuff that happened. It's a, I think it's playing that role. It's also playing the role of um, a, a sort of plot point role showing Antoine's relatively progressive attitude that he insists on making the report, even though it's, you know, in a way that's, I think, more modern. It's a little bit of a anachronism. You know, he's warned by the police they're going to shred her. And he's, you know, like a like a good late 20th century, early 21st century. said, no, it's a rape. We have to report it. Right. And I think probably 1945, the percentage of people who would want to do that under those circumstances is probably quite small. So I think there's a little bit of anachronism there. I also think it's playing the role of trying to portray something about the divide between him and Genevieve, right? The reason he leaves her alone is that she was on the collaborator side uh, and so he goes off to this ceremony without her, and the rape happens in his absence. And so he, there's a kind of embarrassment at her that 
uh, he does feel that becomes very dangerous for her. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, I mean, I guess that's a good explanation. I just, what, what, what did you make of it? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I thought to some degree it was the, because I, I've always, my, upon my first watching the show, I thought, boy, the nobody's, nobody's lionizing the Americans here. And so I did think it was kind of a shot at the occupying American military. Uh, I also thought I didn't necessarily read it as like progressive values. Although when you say that, I think that makes sense. It was more a window into the man that Antoine is becoming. Uh, And, you know, and it really is just a furtherance, right? So I think for a lot of our heroes, Barrio, Schwartz, Larche, they're not, you know, Marie's dead. So you just, you know, everybody's really complicated and not, um, but like uh, Antoine's doing the right thing in these episodes, right? He refuses to stand up and be kind of a, a patsy for a false narrative around the four resistors. And he tells the truth, even though it's at his own expense. Um, and you know, in this situation, you know, and you see a hint of it, like he kind of starts going down the road of almost like a jealous husband of like, well, how did you put yourself in this position? And then quickly, quickly reels that in and goes to bat for her. And, I think it's more just about Antoine uh, being a decent person. More than anything, I didn't like it though. I was just like, I just didn't. Again, I was like, some of it. There's so part of part of my issue with the with the Lucienne storyline, the Hortense storyline, and this storyline. Not only do I just not like them, I don't like enjoy watching them, uh, but more importantly, this is like a really rich opportunity here like this this these six episodes and and they do such a good job with Servier, Marchetti, uh Daniel like you are getting some of the best stuff in the show and it's annoying to me that it is tethered to some of the weakest um storylines as though they just didn't know what to do with some of these characters Agreed. and so I'm just like I'm just aggravated I, they all are missed opportunities to me well, and the biggest missed opportunity um, is that it creates a sort of lacuna. We don't know what, there's no kind of resolution of the burial. Um, you know, he's set up as his political, the, the opening three episodes set up this big set of questions about his political career. And then that just kind of peters out. There's no, you know, it gets kind of overtaken by the Lucienne, you know, priest drama, um, instead of, um, like having a reasonable resolution of its own. Well, yeah. Cause even there, the storyline is nominally, he wants to take out Schwartz so that he can reemerge after the communists have been in charge for a while. Uh, and it's just all like, none of it to me is useful as the show sort of is looking for a way to, to, and I mean, I, I sort of know the next season and it's not a spoiler to say it's a lot of flash forwards. And so like, we know a lot about where these people like ultimately end up. Um, so, you know, we get that. And I guess I just don't understand even knowing that these seem sort of irrelevant to me as storylines. So, so before we wrap, yeah, I I do want to say that for uh, viewers of the show, it's been probably fifteen or twenty years since I've seen it. But for viewers of the show who want to watch a movie that is a depiction of communist youth activity in post-war France, uh, the movie uh, Rouge Bessy, uh Red Kiss, is a wonderful portrait of sort of the, the sort of culture around these camps uh, that uh, that they're going to send Gustave and Leonor off to and the communist youth factions in, it's in Paris, not in a small town, uh, but it involves um, a 15-year-old uh, communist girl who starts having an affair with a non-communist photographer right around the time of Stalin's death in 52, 53. Uh, and so it, it is not, um, uh, it's not 
directly related to this in the sense it's a little farther out from the war uh, and the characters are, are more urban, but it is a great portrayal of the fervor and efforts to impose discipline by the party on like if you watch it thinking of Lenore and uh and Gustave uh you'll you'll get a real feel for the youth culture that they were entering into and uh the attractions and brutalities of it also a really interesting picture of eastern european jewish migrants in france and their role in the communist party love to end on a movie wreck it's a good film all right ben it's on you we got we got two more episodes coming one more season we're we're working toward the close ducks with pants so that sarah can you know sweep us all away with a broom and <laughs> and work on her her new favorite podcasts it'll be the final triumph of of jvl over Wittis. uh it's I love all, all coming. my podcasts equally yes and then, uh until then edith take us home